This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Poisio. My name's Andrew Carroll. And today we're talking about one of the all-time character actor goats. He played Mary's dad and There's Something About Mary. He's the cat in Caroline. He took on the thing and lived, maybe. Maybe, yeah. He, it's Keith David. Woo! Andrew, run down his history. I'm going to take this one low and slow, like oh, yeah. David himself and like all good barbecue. Keith David was born in Harlem in New York City in 1956. After playing the Cowardly Lion in a school production of The Wizard of Oz, he fell in love with acting and studied at both Manhattan's High School of Performing Arts and at the Juilliard School. After touring with John Houseman's theatre company, David was cast in his first credited film role in John Carpenter's 1982 masterpiece, The Thing, as the mechanic Childs. He next appeared as Keith, the handyman, on Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood, and for contrast's sake, as King in Oliver Stone's 1986 war film, Platoon. David's powerful yet smooth baritone voice and commanding screen presence has seen him cast in an endless series of police and military roles from Armageddon to Agent Cody Banks and from Crash to My Mom's New Boyfriend. In film, he is best known for They Live, his second Carpenter collaboration, Dead Presidents, The Quick and the Dead, Pitch Black, Barbershop, Cloud Atlas, The Nice Guys, and most recently, Nope. He has worked with Ken Burns on two of the documentary makers' exhaustive series The War and Muhammad Ali, both of which won David an Emmy for his voiceover work. As a voice actor, David is somehow just as prolific as he is in his live-action career, his most famous roles including Goliath in Gargoyles, Spawn in Spawn, Dr. Facilier in The Princess and the Frog, I got voodoo, I got hoodoo, I got things I ain't even tried, I've got friends on the other side, he's got friends on the other side. Nice to know you're such a big Princess and the Frog. It's a great fan. movie. I saw it in the cinema. It was the last kind of Disney, li- uh, not live action. Um, hand-drawn. Hand-drawn kind of animation. God, I wish they'd go back. Um, as well as The President on Rick and Morty, Admiral Anderson in the Mass Effect series, and the Arbiter Thal Vadami in the Halo series of video games. Yes. Um, is that everything? That is everything. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, like a nerd, I chose to end on the video games he did. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the last two people we covered on the show Glenn Powell and Mary Elizabeth Winstead we had to argue a bit for their status as character yeah. actors whereas Keith David is basically like the Iron embodiment yeah. of and the gold standard yeah. for the term character mm-hmm. actor um, he's talked about this on interview in interviews but he's an actor who's always working always on the hunt for work constantly on his IMDb I count at least 17 credits for the last year alone between appearing on screen or doing just voice or narration work and like he, he appears in like anything yeah, <laughs> you know like yeah. he'll be in blockbusters he'll be in straight to DVD movies he'll do prestige TV he'll do network TV he'll do sitcoms he'll do podcast series he'll do video games and yet every time at least any time I've seen him in anything he seems to be giving 110% yeah and um it's very impressive because I think of all the people we've covered on the show, David's probably the actor I've seen the most in movies. Maybe alongside you're probably right, yeah. Willem Dafoe or Tilda yeah. Swinton, um, and yet I think he generally always tends to leave a pretty big impression, even if it's a the smallest bit part. Yeah, yeah. like um, in I think it's it's Volcano, the Tommy Lee Jones disaster mm-hmm. movie. Um, and he just shows up in the middle and all of a sudden he's Tommy Lee Jones' sidekick. He's never introduced <laughs> properly. He's just there. He's a police lieutenant who's assisting in the rescue in diverting the lava on the street and he's just there. And But you're happy to see him. He makes that movie ten times better than it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think a reason for just his scene stealing abilities is just that no one really looks or sounds like him yeah. like he, he's yeah. got that legendary deep baritone and sonorous voice where you could basically give him any kind of dialogue and his delivery will instantly give it a sense of gravitas mm. um, he's handsome too like he's got these great pearly white teeth where, which he can kind of flash into a big mm. grin and you know although he's played a lot of bald characters um, I love the hair he tends to rock which is black but has like flecks of grey in it mm. he's very striking looking and um, between that and his voice he just has so much presence and but I think what's impressive is that like despite having such a like distinct looking voice he can and does play every type of role like he can use those qualities to be the lovable paternal figure which he, he kind of is and there's something about Mary but his voice can also come in handy when he's playing figures of authority, particularly irritated ones, delivering just tirades of mm-hmm. insults uh, in things like Armageddon or um, Fatal Analysis, oh, which I watched for this. He's so good in Armageddon. Yeah, it really is. The, the be- his best line it is not very PC, so I won't repeat yeah, it here, yeah. but it is so funny. <laughs> and, um, 
Yeah, figures of authority are really his bread and butter. If you look through his filmography, it's just endless lieutenant, general, mm. detective, sheriff, CIA director, FBI agent, <laughs> sergeant, captain, coach. But he's also played one of the most repellent characters in a movie ever in Wrecking for a Dream. Yeah, what's it, Big Tim, is it? Yeah, just so effectively disturbing and terrifying mm. in that. And like that's a movie I remember blowing me away, but I just could not bring myself to watch it again I because it's my, so yeah. devastating. Uh, yeah. Um, I like the song from it or the track "Requiem for a Dream," but I, I don't. I don't see myself. I don't see myself ever watching that movie. Yeah, me too. Um, basically, what I'm trying to say is, anyone who has even a passing interest in cinema will have probably seen Keith David in a mm. movie, and or remember a character he's played, even if they may not know who he is. Yeah, and um, like he's Charles in the Thing, like he's Roddy Piper's friend, and they live. He's the guy who says, "This is the Frank with the beans," and there's something about Mary. <laughs> he's the evil pimp in "Requiem for a Dream." He's Danny Cluey's dad, a nope. And he's in like five minutes in the movie yeah. at the start, but has such a major shadow over the rest of the movie. And, you know, he's done voice work in multiple massive Disney animated movies. And um, it's just a, it's just a great career. Um, I do wish he played more lead roles, though. Like, I think the closest he's probably got yeah. was Dead Presidents and They Live, where he's second build in both. Yeah, but I yeah. don't really know why he didn't get more chances to like lead a TV show or something. He did lead one. Uh, did he? Greenleaf. Yeah, Bishop. He plays a bishop. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. I wasn't on, aware it's on the Oprah Winfrey Network. It might just let me up. You think we get here? Yeah, yeah. I, I like it, it was on Netflix actually for a while. Oh, okay. yeah, because um, my brother watched it and he said it. He was like, "It's not for me." So fair enough. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I only I only Even knew movies. Like, yeah, like he could yeah. have had a like um, I don't know. Why doesn't he get a John Wick? You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he should. He should. Um, well, we start off with the thing. Yes. You, you watch specifically for this. I've watched kind of recently, yeah. so I might chime in. Yeah, sure. Antarctica, winter, nineteen eighty-two. A Norwegian helicopter lands at an American research station after chasing a dog across the ice. The Americans kill the crazed Norwegians and take the dog into their care. An investigation by R.J. McCready, played by Kurt Russell, reveals that the Norwegian base was destroyed after they removed something from the ice. The creature, able to mimic anything it kills, is revealed to be active among the American crew, which sows seeds of distrust between them, particularly between McCready and the base's mechanic, Childs, played by Keith David. What do you got in mind, McCready? A little test. Windows... You and Palmer, cut everybody down real tight. What for? For your health. Come on, let's rush him. He's not going to blow us all up. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's let's do what Max says. I mean, uh, he wasted Norris pretty quick, didn't he? That's close enough, Clark. He ain't tying me up. Then I'll have to kill you, child. Then kill me. I mean it. I guess you do. So, um, just a real murderer's row of uh, great 80s character actors from Wilford Brimley to Richard Dysart and Donald Moffat. And the, ca- the, the what I love about this movie is that the cast look, they all look like real people. Maybe not traditional scientists. It's a kind of a more blue collar kind of movie. Um, but real people nonetheless, like half of them are bald or balding. Uh, all but one are under 30, maybe. Um, Nall strikes me as kind of younger. Um, plenty of them wear glasses. And even the the hero was buried under this insane amount of hair. And you can, you can kind of tell by looking at McCready that maybe he smells a bit. You know, mm. he doesn't wash as often as he should, maybe, which is probably down to the I what I think a lot of people assume is kind of like post traumatic stress disorder inflicted by the Vietnam War, maybe. Oh yeah, I hadn't yeah. even thought about that. Yeah, because yeah. uh, he's a military. He has the military uh, mm. cavalry hat and the military jacket. That makes sense, given he's a helicopter pilot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a film that puts you smack bang in the middle of it. There's no proper beginning or end, really. You know, they're already at the base when the movie starts, and they're still at it and likely will remain at it for long after the movie ends uh, so it's it's sort of the perfect nightmare in that way and um, we learn about the thing uh, as the characters do and it's twice as frightening because each new revelation sucks that bit more hope out of the situation it's like a tiny crack in an airplane window you don't know the air is almost gone until it's too late and it's that it's also that alien thing uh, only three years after alien um of having a group of people together that either don't know or maybe don't even like each other all that much and then you introduce a monster into the mix which just makes things even worse 
And Keith David is kind of great, is as Childs, is great at stoking those flames of like distru- mistrust and discontent. And you, you can understand, understand why he does it, because he's scared, first of all. Um, but he's also in denial for much of the film. Uh, you believe any of this voodoo bullshit? Mm. Um, and with each new gory revelation or horrifying death, he tends to bury his head further in the snow until he has no choice but to confront the thing, killing his co-workers. And I think that's what makes the movie's famous ending so tragic in one way and heroic in another. As Childs McCready might... It's in that's in bold. Put that in bold in my notes. Charles McCready might have saved humanity, but they won't save themselves. And even in their last hours together, there's that push and pull between trust and doubt and success and failure. And even in like, you know, had have they done enough? That kind of thing. And um for what it's worth, I've always thought it was McCready who was the thing. And even if the question is much better than the answer, um, I just like the idea of our cool but paranoid hero unknowingly falling prey to his own paranoia while the hot-headed and aggressive rival has been the real hero all along. And I think what's great about the movie is um, in the first entry of the 80s horror documentary In Search of Darkness, uh, Keith David is on talking about the thing and they live. And he feels his own kind of headcanon for Childs, which is, I survived. I'm iconic. Mm. And um, I was curious what his opinion on the... um, the ending was and John Did you Car- watch that video of he, him breaking down the ending it's on YouTube I I don't know maybe I did watch a video sure. um, and so John Carpenter has been asked you know over the last 40 years countless times so has Kurt Russell and I think they both kind of uh, and you know the cinematographer Dean Cundy has his own opinion on it because of the way he lit the scene um, whereas uh, Keith David just seems seemed to take it as like a uh, who cares? The like the question is better than the answer, mm. and uh, never really. I don't think he ever really gives a definitive answer. Maybe he doesn't really. He I, he seemed to think that the open endingness might lead to a sequel. In the video I saw, which yeah, was, like, yeah, I don't really think it, it was meant and intended like that. Yeah, well, they did. Maybe they, it was. There, there was, was a video a huge game. Hit, yeah, but, uh, there was a video game, and then there was comic books, but there was no like. I don't think there was ever the intention of making a sequel. I think the ambiguity at the end is kind of like. You can never know. Yeah, exactly. You the know, ambiguity and, and is the like point. The yeah. decision to yeah. so we should stop distrusting each other and just yeah, kind of yeah, like accept yeah, our yeah. fate. Um, um, I love. I just love the bit where um, your man comes in screaming about the flamethrower, and he's like, "Mac wants the what?" <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, the line about the voodoo is really good, and I, I think that last scene is so well acted between them two, because mm-hmm. it's the first time there's any kind of real warmth between two characters in a movie, but literally, maybe and figuratively. Yeah, 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 specifically between those two, because you get the sense that they. Well, obviously, they don't know each other that well because it's the first goddamn week of winter. And also, that as the movie goes on, they kind of don't like each other all that much because McCready is sort of cool, collected and very aloof, whereas Childs is a lot more hot-headed and um, temperamental. Hmm. Um, in, I, I watched a video with Keith David breaking down the final scene and he said two interesting things one he was delighted to do the thing because he played a black man in a horror movie and lived mm-hmm. and he survived he's so, iconic Yeah, and two he suggested that They Live is almost a spiritual sequel to the thing mm, and that yeah, we both, did watch the same video Yeah, they both feature David and feature um, aliens uh, covertly blending in with humans mm. so we get into that yeah, Great. yeah. So do you have the I plot do. Nada played by Roddy Piper is a homeless drifter who arrives in LA in search of work He lands a construction job and befriends a fellow worker and drifter called Frank, played by Keith David, who invites him to live in a shantytown. After spotting suspicious activity at a local church, Nada investigates and takes a pair of sunglasses that let him see that the world is actually controlled by aliens. Nada convinces Frank, in a six-minute alleyway brawl, to join a secret rebel group to expose and to stop the aliens. I got a wife and two kids back in Detroit. Haven't seen them in six months. Steel mills were laying people off left and right. They finally went under. We gave the steel companies a break when they needed it. Know what they gave themselves? Raises. The golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rule. They closed one more factory. We should take a sledge to one of their fancy fucking foreign cars. You know, you ought to have a little more patience with life. Yeah, well, I'm all out. The whole deal is like some kind of crazy game. They put you at the starting line, and the name of the game is Make It Through Life. Only everyone's out for themselves and looking to do you in at the same time. 
Okay, man, here we are. Here we are. Now, you do what you can. But remember, I'm going to do my best to blow your ass away. I've seen this movie maybe four or five times now, Same but yeah. researching it for this, I was surprised to see some people describe it as so bad it's good. Mm. This is a capital G great movie yeah. and a capital I important movie mm. to boot. Um, and, you know, sure, it's been established during our Donald Pleasance and Tom Atkins episodes that we're both huge John Carpenter fans, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and he's probably the director we've talked about most on this podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. definitely in the running. And um, But I feel this is undoubtedly his most political or socially minded movie. Absolutely, um, yeah. While some of his other movies definitely play on societal concerns, this one is very explicitly a takedown of both the Reaganomics that were happening when the film was made, but also generally, as Carpenter puts it, a unrestrained capitalism. Mm. You know, the feeling that like making money has become seen by a good few in society as being more important than looking over their fellow man. And I feel like Carpenter is saying that such behavior, like destroying a peaceful homeless camp, should be seen as alien mm. or monstrous. And um, I think Blank Trank pointed this out, but like the nightmarish idea that it's aliens that to achieve their insidious goals are secretly corrupting humanity by using subliminal messages to make us greedy and turn against each other and that aliens are actually causing global warming as a means to terraform earth to meet their biological requirements on one level that's actually less disturbing than you know us just actually yeah. just doing it to ourselves yeah. you know and um but i i feel like carpenter making the heroes that they live homeless people rebelling against these evil rich aliens and also the movie strange but instantly iconic iconography you know mm. like these the sunglasses that when you wear them expose the alien subliminal messaging roddy piper's character wearing the glasses and seeing a normal dollar bill that actually reads like this is your god mm. um it all still feels very potent and timely and um i think while this movie has some campy dialogue moments you know i have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass and i'm all out of bubble gum um or you're like put on these glasses or start eating that trash can <laughs> not this year um <laughs> I think one, they're generally fun, genuinely yeah. very funny. Two, they feel a bit like sugar to help the medicine go down. Yeah, yeah. And I think Carpenter is too much of an entertainer and knows that y you have to have those moments that give the movie a bit of a spontaneity, and so it's not just like lecturing you or feeling yeah. didactic. I think uh, just going back to that yeah. documentary in Search of Darkness, um, John Carpenter was talking about that movie, and he was saying that a lot of those lines come from Roddy Piper himself, who was a wrestler at the time, yeah. and uh, these were just kind of things he had written down <laughs> uh, to use during the trash talking segments in the ring before they actually start wrestling, which is really funny. They do come out of nowhere the movie, and the fact that like mm. the first thirty minutes of the movie, Roddy Piper is playing like a pretty like lived in pretty normal guy, yeah. normal guy <laughs> and then suddenly he's going into a bank with a shotgun yeah. and doing one-liners uh, but um because yeah because you're right because in the before he st starts saying all those one-liners he's like um he's talking to keith david about the church and frank is like um oh don't mess with it man i walk a white line i don't bother nobody nobody bothers me and roddy piper goes well that's the middle of the road most dangerous place to drive. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, that's sound advice. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then suddenly he's like a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> but it would understandably so because like... Oh, yeah, it would break your brain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I think just the themes that they live and Carpenter's, I think, trademark directorial flair, always mm. a bit like punching above his budget, I think ultimately overcome some maybe rickety special effects. This only costs like three million to make. Mm. Um, and some maybe less strong acting moments from David's co-stars. Although I actually think Roddy Piper, um, for the most part, is quite good in this. Yeah, I think so too. Um, there's just little moments where you can tell he's not like a seasoned actor. Yeah, yeah. Some of yeah. the one-liners, but like aren't the most popular ones, mm. I think. Mm. But um, yeah, I generally think this is like one of the most interesting sci-fi movies of all time and one of the best. Yeah, I think um, I think Keith David has his little moments too, and you can see the kind of the seed of his comic timing that would really grow and blossom like 30 years later in Community, where he's like. Um, he meets uh, after Nada goes on his rampage and then they meet up again at the construction site. He's like, you crazy son of a bitch. <laughs> and his voice goes up like three octaves or um, after the Alloway brawl where they're both like, beat to shit, they're bruised, bleeding. And they've got these, they both have these giant pairs of sunglasses that cover half their face. And they go to a motel and Keith and your man looks at them in shock and Keith David just goes, I'd like a room. <laughs> <It's> so funny. <laughs> yeah, the fact that you can thread this line between um, very potent social commentary mm. and just genuine like hysterical moments yeah. is, is very impressive. Mm. Um, um, and I think, I don't know, people find that a bit 
bewildering and that I think is why people mistake it for being so bad it's good when it's actually just great yeah um yeah. I think um David though by far is like the best actor in this um mm. I think his presence and character adds such a humanity and authenticity to the movie. Apparently Carpenter was so impressed by David when they worked on the thing that he wrote the role of Frank specifically for him. And as I said, like, Day Love is one of the few movies along with Dead Presidents where David is second build and basically a co-lead. Which, I'll say again, annoying. You should have gotten a chance to lead more movies. Mm. But um, I think in Day Live, like, Piper's not a... While he does get some emotional scenes, he's more in the vein of your typical stoic action hero, the type that, like, Kurt Russell plays in, like, Escape from New York and L.A., David's Frank, on the other hand, feels much more true to life and lived in and is as such kind of easier to root for. You know, he's this homeless man from Detroit who lost his job when the steel mill company he was working at went under and thus came to L.A. to find work and support his wife and kids back home. And I think Carpenter and David immediately establish Frank as like a kind hearted man who, if you ever see him gruff or short tempered, is doing so out of a sense of self-preservation mm, after yeah. a hard life. Like, I love Frank and me cute, essentially. <laughs> Frank offers to help Nada and show him where he can get food and shelter and sleep safely on the streets but Nada basically ignores him at first and Frank's like fine yeah and goes to walk away but then Nada starts following him down the street <laughs> much to um, Frank's annoyance and at one point Frank turns around and says I don't like anyone following me unless I know why and Nada says back well I don't join up with anyone until I see where they're going <laughs> and Frank just shakes his head smiling because he kind of understands like yeah, they're strangers yeah. you know and they've got to build trust but also that interaction sort of builds trust. Mm. And from that point on, like, they're best buds. Yeah. Um, and I, I talked a lot earlier about some of Dayleb's themes, but I actually think the movie subtly explores kind of racial issues through the Frank character. Mm. Because, like, at the start of the movie, Frank is more anti-authority than Nada. When he talks about being laid off to Nada, he says, like, we gave the steel company a break when they needed it. You know what they gave themselves? Raises. And he later adds, like, they closed one more factory. Um, we should take a sledge to one of their fancy foreign cars. And Nada, on the other hand, is a lot more like trust in the system mm. than Frank. Like he says back, like, you ought to have a little more patience with life, you mm. know. And he says, like, uh, yeah, I deliver a hard day's work for my money. I just want the chance. It'll come. I believe in America. Yeah. I follow the rules. And it's almost like, though Frank and Nada are both homeless, it's possible Frank has had a much more difficult life than Nada because yeah. he's back. Yeah. And he seems yeah angrier at the system, but, but also is kind of reluctant to rock the boat and risk making a situation worse. Like... The minute Nada starts uncovering the conspiracy, Frank pulls him aside and you know, says that line, that the, the white line, mm. he walks. Yeah. You know, I don't bother nobody. Nobody bothers me. You better start doing the same. But, you know, Nada through these sunglasses actually discovers that Frank is right. Like, the mm. game is rigged. Yeah. And in this case, by capitalist aliens. <laughs> and in the world of this movie, there's not even an America. You know, like, the human collaborator to the aliens says at the end, like, there ain't no countries anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, justifying what he's done, he also says, we sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Which is such a killer line. Yeah. Um, but and the fact he looks like... I don't know, Chris Christopherson or... He's so good. Yeah. And the fact he's in, you, he's in the in the early section of the movie. Yeah, he's yeah. He's the guy watching the TV who's like, oh, the perception's so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, but anyway, like, Nada winds up like taking a stand against the aliens, but they're in disguise, so it, it just looks like he's killing innocent civilians. <laughs> and, but because he's sound, like, Frank still seeks out Nada and gives him money. Uh, but, uh, like, out of that self-preservation factor I mentioned he's also like stay away from me from now on mm. man and in response to that is like you gotta try on these sunglasses yeah. <laughs> and, and like he sounds to Frank like an utter madman and Frank rightfully being reluctant to become involved in Nada's mess punches him leading to that like just epic visceral yeah. bruising six minute fight scene one of the best fight scenes of all time yeah I think it took like I, I don't know if it was three days or three weeks to rehearse but at the end I think Keith David has always said it's the safest he's ever felt in a fight. Oh, yeah. that's so cute. And it is really funny because it is like, it's such a good um, example of a fight scene that builds character as well. Because mm, yeah, you can tell absolutely. these guys really like each other, but are really at the end of their rope with each other. Because they want to, because they're trying to just take out their frustrations on each other without hurting or killing each other. And like the bit where he like slams the piece of wood into the car window, the car window and it shatters and he's like, oh shit, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. And he, then he like tackles him or whatever. But they kind of start laughing. He's yeah. like, oh, he didn't yeah. even mean he, to do he that. He breaks the bottle yeah, and yeah, it just yeah. completely shatters. And he's like... <laughs> There's also a bit where Nada goes to hit Frank in the balls. And Frank kind of catches him. I was like, mm. You're playing dirty now, are we? Dirty, <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they, they have true chemistry. Mm. But I also think, like, Roddy Piper is a professional wrestler. And it would be hard for him to do that scene 
with uh, you know someone who isn't a trained professional yeah. and make it feel kind of like has stakes or make it yeah. feel like the other person would be like a competitor to him but like Keith David is over six foot and is very muscular in this yeah. movie and he feels formidable and he gets like the proper wrestling move where he like he's the, he, Roddy Piper has him in a headlock and they're facing a wall and Keith David jumps up kicks off the wall oh, yeah, and they yeah. Smash, smashes Roddy Piper back down on the ground. It's really good. It's so cool. Yeah. I, I couldn't. I always think uh, that probably goes on a bit. And every time I'm like, that was six minutes. I yeah, watch another yeah. three minutes. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, and like I think out of all the movies I watch for this, Day Live might be like the best showcase for David in that like this man just shows off his physicality, his emotional range. And comic timing, comic it's timing. all there, and just his knack at being able to take any sort of dialogue and make it feel important and weighty. Because mm. Carpenter gives him so many like little mini monologues that like mm. play on David's strength. There's the bit after Nada finally gets Frank to pawn the sunglasses, and they're in the hotel room talking, which is amazing. Particularly the bit where David, as Frank, muses about aliens, and he says like, "Maybe they've always been with us. Those things out there. Maybe they love seeing us hate each other, watching us kill each other off, feeding on our cold fucking hearts." It's already pretty powerful monologue or like mm. pretty powerful dialogue but like David makes it feel almost like Shakespearean <laughs> yeah. but, but it has come after this six minute street brawl yeah. like such a cool movie mm. really really good do you want to talk about uh, Pitch Black now maybe yeah sure Yeah. the spaceship Hunter Gratzner is transporting passengers through deep space when it is struck by debris killing the captain and knocking the ship off course crash landing on a planet that bakes under the heat of three suns the passengers including pilot Carolyn Fry played by Radha Mitchell Bounty Hunter William J. Johns, played by Cole Hauser, his psychotic prisoner Richard B. Riddick, played by Vin Diesel, and a Muslim imam Abu al-Walid, played by Keith David, must work together to escape before nightfall proves deadly. Shall we pray together? I have already prayed with the others. It is painless. Because you do not believe in God. Does not mean God does not believe in you. Someone can spend half their life in a slam with a horse pit in their mouth and not believe. Think he could start out in some liquor store trash bin with an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and not believe? Got it all wrong, holy man. I absolutely believe in God. And I absolutely hate the fucker. He is with us nonetheless. Two of your boys are already dead. How much faith do you have left, Father? So it was a very early 2000s movie full of kind of the clunky, gritty sci-fi spaceships and all the lens flares, strong but sexy female characters and leather that comes with it. I suppose it's fitting that every Vin Diesel-led franchise feels like it's been beamed in from a dimension where the 2000s never ended. Mm. Um, so I've always I've always said he only makes Fast and Furious movies to finance his Triple X movies to finance his Riddick movies to finance his Last Witch Hunter movies uh, last, movie. last, Witch, <laughs> last Witch Hunter 2 fingers crossed everyone okay. um, not that I've seen the first one uh. um, and we love saying that the mid-budget adult thriller has died but I think we're kind of sorely lacking decently budgeted fant- fantasy and sci-fi too I mean you know Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves is it's coming. great it's really good uh, yeah it's coming, it's coming out soon or uh, is out already and but so much of like those two genres now sit in like dense long lasting TV series that are as easy to get into as a, as a brick and frankly the dreck we get in the MCU or DCU doesn't cut it and science fiction allows for the kind of diverse casts and stories that are present here um, but we're still quite far away from even now um, and western Muslim actums are pretty rare now uh, you know we have we have uh, Rami from that show Rami and um, Mahershala Ali, Mahershala Ali who's from, in Rami who's in Rami and has, is a two time Oscar winner so like their their batting average is pretty high considering how how few few of them there are at the minute and they were even rarer at the turn of the millennium which is kind of why you hired uh, someone like Keith David back then because mm. you couldn't find an actual Muslim um, and it was probably one of if not the last positive depiction of a Muslim man in Western cinema for quite a few years, considering what happened to Western media as a direct result of the towers falling on 9-11. And I think that Al-Walid is depicted and played in a really positive light as a peaceful but pragmatic man willing to do whatever he can to get his three adolescent charges off the planet and back on their Hajj to New Mecca. And he's a man of faith. Not even the death of all three of his charges can sway him from his belief in Allah. And although his fellow survivors aren't Muslim, their belief in something is what? unites them all and ensures their survival so Rickard Riddick eventually finds faith in like humanity um, thanks to um, 
Fry's faith in just um, trying to, I don't know, Fry's faith in redemption, I think. Mm. She's trying to get away. And that said, Al-Walid doesn't last long considering his death is kind of the instigator for the plot of the Chronicles of Riddick. I was going to say, they bring him back, don't they? They bring him back. And, and he's kind of the emotional linchpin, isn't he? Like, isn't that he's trying to get revenge for him? It's been years I think so. since yeah, I've seen I can't, Yeah, and I remember not liking... All I remember of the Chronicles of Riddick is the line, In our culture, you keep what you kill. Which I think <laughs> is great. If only it didn't have Carl Urban with like a rat tail mullet. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember who said this, but someone was like... The first pitchback is very much like Alien, and like yeah. they make... Chronicles of Riddick's like Vin Diesel trying to make it like Star Wars and yeah. it's just weird yeah, yeah it's weird and it doesn't really work that well Riddick though Return to Form love the third one yeah yeah I, I mean I, I, I'm curious to see what they'll do with the fourth one whenever it's think they'll do it it's announced yeah, they're, oh, yeah. They're, they're, David Toy back yeah yeah okay and Vin, and Vin. Uh, God knows who else is in it presumably, presumably some blonde some hot blonde with a bob cut Great. <laughs> dressed in leather as you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written or ghostwritten. If you ever read about Elizabeth and Jessica, the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. Of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnapping, stolen boyfriends and school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Might I talk about final analysis? Go for it, yeah. Now, before I get into it, I should probably mention that personal project I've been undertaking over the last few months is to try and watch as many neo-noir thrillers that Hollywood made in the 80s or 90s. Because I love mysteries. I love thrillers in general. But the 80s and 90s were a great time for them because they were considered mainstream entertainment. Um, So they all have big stars. They look really expensive. Said ship by that time have relaxed since the days of the 40s and 50s noirs. So they're a bit grittier, a bit sleazier. There's more violence, there's more sex. But more importantly, there seem to be one released every fortnight. Mm. They churn them out. There's so many. And generally, I always find them really entertaining to watch because if they're done well, you're, you're really invested in the story and you're doing that thing where you're like shouting at the screen. You know, he's in the room with exactly. you. There was one uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was watching one called Suspect, which was made in 1987 with Cher, Dennis Quaid, and Liam Neeson. Good God! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Liam Neeson plays a, a homeless Vietnam veteran who is deaf, who is accused of killing someone. Uh, it's and Cher is the lawyer representing him. It's great. Um, but um, there's a part in the movie where Cher, who for ultimately good reasons never mind personal projects it's more like a pilgrimage Stephen (laughs) she um, for good reasons her lawyer character does something in a law library that could get her disbarred and she's almost caught by the judge in the case she's working on while she's doing it played by Fraser's dad of course and you're just screaming at the screen like get out of the library Cher (laughs) Um, but also because the movies are a bit more extreme and over the top than the 40s or 50s equivalents Mm. of you know noirs even when they don't work they're pretty fun to kind of watch and laugh at because they're so like overcranked. Mm. Um, so yeah, two I've watched in the last couple of months that I thought were incredible were Jagged Edge with Glenn Close and Jeff Bridges. Uh, no Way Out with Kevin Cosner, Gene Hackman and Sean Young. I'd rate Suspect highly too. Mm. Um, another good one is Unlawful Entry with Kurt Russell, uh, Madeline Stowe and the late and great uh, Ray Liotta. 
Um, Pacific Heights with Matthew Medine, Manny Griffin and Michael Keaton was another one I watched, which has a great premise, but is sadly not quite as fun as you want. It has some good stuff in it. Mm. Um, and then there's obviously like the ones, classics yeah, I'd seen before, like Basic Instinct, Body Heat, the Scorsese remake of Cape Fear. Anyway, all of this is to say is that when I saw Keith David fifth build on Wikipedia in one of these thrillers final analysis, I was like, it's going in the queue. Yeah. It's going to go into the letterbox watch list. I um, almost watched Smiley because he was like fourth build. Smiley has a terrifying poster, but I'm, I'm sure I imagine the movie is not good. Yeah, I imagine it's terrible. I read the plot in Wikipedia. I was like, this is bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> it was, we have Smile. You know what I mean? We have Smile. smile yeah, it. yeah. And Smiley's a stupid name anyway. Yeah, sure. Drop the Y. It's clean. <laughs> <laughs> But Philad uh, also stars Richard Gere as Dr. Isaac Barr, a psychiatrist who often testifies in court to evaluate the mental health of defendants. Um, he seems a little bored with his life. He tells his friend early on, like, I look at people's thoughts. I try to figure out what they really mean. You do this enough. After a while, people, they stop surprising you. I just want to be surprised. He's going to live to eat those words. Yeah. Basically, uh, be- he begins treating a troubled young woman played by Uma Thurman and in doing so meets and falls in love with her older sister played by Kim Basinger. Um, Basinger's character Heather um, happens to be in a loveless marriage to a gangster played by Eric Roberts. Um, she also seems to suffer from pathological intoxication, a condition where if she drinks alcohol, she can begin to act abnormally and sometimes violently. After one of these instances, Heather becomes implicated in a crime and it's up to Isaac to help her avoid prison. Sleeping with her all the while, I presume. <laughs> Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I had the dream again. I've been treating this attractive, seductive young woman. One sister was a perfect puzzle. Everything goes up in flames. Waiting to be solved. I just can't seem to get off your couch, can I, Dr. Barr? You've got an older sister who just happens to be married. Jimmy, I don't want to. Do it. The other sister was a perfect lover. Do you think you can help us? Waiting to be seduced. He didn't sleep with her. There were a thousand reasons he shouldn't get involved. Doesn't feel right. Do you always try to talk yourself out of what you want? But he did. I'd stop seeing the girl like... I don't know if I can. Isaac, I'm married. Yeah. You tried divorcing a Greek Orthodox gangster. I don't like people looking at my wife. (laughs) Are you gonna help me? Or not? I wish there was something we could do to help Heather. Anyone see you? I don't think so. Detective? You think it was me? Not you and me. What would you think? I thought this movie was um, pretty decent and watchable. That's it. I wouldn't rank it as high as, say, Jagged Edge or No Way Out or even Unlawful Entry. Um, it's made by a pretty good director. I think his name's Phil Janu. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, who will be best known in some corners for directing a lot of um, YouTube videos and the documentary uh, Rattle and Home. I have a lot of affection for him because he directed this great gangster film called State of Grace with uh, Sean Penn, Ed Harris, Gary Oldman and Robin Wright. Have you ever heard of it? I don't think um, so. If not, it's probably because it came out the same week as Goodfellas, which just right. killed it at the box yeah, office, which yeah. is a shame because it's really good. But um, Janu is a music video guy. He makes really stylish movies. And I'm not sure if this is exactly the case, but it feels like he took a 90s script with psychoanalytic elements and thought, I can make this like a tribute or homage to Alfred Hitchcock. Like Vertigo, Final Analysis of San Francisco. It culminates in a sequence on a tower. Kim Basinger is styled like a Hitchcock blonde in the vein of like Kim Novak and Vertigo. But also there's that emphasis on psychoanalysis, which you find in a lot of Hitchcock movies. Um, this one's a little bit like Marnie in that there's a whole part of final analysis trying to uncover a childhood trauma. And on one level, you kind of admire the ambition of Janu to try and make his Hitchcock movie with final analysis and to make a 90s third that's a bit more meditative, a bit slower than, say, something like Basic Instinct. There's more time spent getting to know the characters and getting to the kind of crooks of the movie than you might expect. But Janu can also include the sex and violence that Hitchcock couldn't put in his movies once warranted. That's it. Like... <laughs> Even though Final Analysis is said to be based on a concept by a forensic psychiatrist um, named uh, Robert H. Berger. Um, <laughs> it's true. Why are you laughing? It's true. Bob Ber- Bob's Burgers. Bob's Burgers. Um, I, w- <laughs> I wouldn't say it has the emotional and intellectual depth of the Hitchcock movies it's paying homage to. Um, like Movies like Marnie and Vertigo are still being picked apart and analyzed today as to what they mean or what Hitchcock was trying to say about human behavior with them. While kind of any psychoanalytic concepts in final analysis are more just treated as a vehicle for the kind of romance, the violence, the twists that you get in basically any 80s Mm. or 90s thriller, which I don't mind. But I I think matching the style of a Hitchcock movie with a more trashy 90s movie leads to the film feeling a bit disjointed because like 
the more Hitchcock-esque first hour before we get to the instant with Heather feels kind of artful and intelligent, if maybe a little dragged out and long. Whereas the kind of like full on goofy, very 90s last era feels almost like it's out of a different movie. Mm. The first, even if it's still kind of fun, um, both parts of the movie are watchable. I just wish they'd kind of committed to one or the other. I think Keith David's performance feels like it's in the more campy, maybe more fun 90s thriller mode. Um, he appears briefly in the beginning as Detective Huggins, a cop frustrated that the people he arrests are being found not guilty for reasons of insanity based on Dr. Isaac Barr's testimonies. Ooh. So there's already kind of animosity between the two early on but then later this is enhanced when Huggins begins investigating the incident with Heather which I won't spoil to be honest like Huggins is a very standard archetypal kind of part in these types of movies they often feature sort of irritated jaded cop or figure of authority mm. so it's even more credit to David when I say that he takes a minor character with like no interiority we never learn anything about him other than he hates Richard Gere's character <laughs> and makes him undisputedly one of the movie's highlights even from David's character's like his first scene with the gear character the actor just is bringing so much energy and presence David's character Huggins confronts Dr. Barr and his lawyer friend outside court and the lawyer is like you upset about something detective and Huggins puts on this fake voice and is like who me? no detective <laughs> we cops love it when a guy walks and then he shifts demeanor violently and that's especially on a bullshit insanity plea <laughs> and um as Barr goes to like defend his patients Huggins is like listen 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 I've heard it all before hell if anyone should be going crazy it should be me watching months and months of work go down the toilet because of you <laughs> um, um, I can hear it in my head and then later on like David Huggins accuses Barr of being an accomplice to the crime Heather is being accused of and summing up her case accurately I should add he tells Barr the expert witness is your friend the lawyer is your best friend the sister is your patient and you're banging the accused <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the dialogue is his dialogue in particular is pretty great uh, the script is written by the guy who wrote the Scorsese version of Cape Fear but his delivery makes it even better mm. um, he's hysterical to emphasize his points his character often just whips a cigar into his mouth just to chew on never lights it mm. <laughs> which is pretty funny visually too and I think those two scenes I listed are his only major dialogue scenes where he gets to deliver a lot of um, speech um, his character kind of surprisingly winds up being a major part of the very convoluted and silly climactic action sequence like it's literally just him Gear and Basinger together oh okay <laughs> so he's actually in the movie A Fair Boot which yeah. is uh, great for fans of his um, will we move on to Quick and Dead yeah sure I like the plot for this great um, this is a this 90s western uh, takes place in 1881 and centers around a town named Redemption a little on the nose, but I like it. Just a tad, yeah. But uh, <laughs> the town is run by an evil, ruthless former outlaw named John Herod, uh, played by Gene Hackman. In the town, Herod hosts and takes part in what's basically a dueling tournament for gunslingers with a big cash prize. The rules are that duels must feature two players. Any contestant may challenge any other. No challenge can be refused. Every contestant must fight once per day. And a fight continues until one contestant either yields or dies. They have to get shot or die. Yeah. Being a former outlaw who now runs Redemption with an iron fist, Herod is running and taking part in the tournament as a way to show off how powerful he is. He thinks himself as the fastest draw in the West. However, the contest brings a number of other skilled gunslingers out of the woodwork. These include an enigmatic woman known only as the Lady, played by Sharon Stone, who's out for vengeance and is our main protagonist. Um, there's also an ambitious young teenager named The Kid, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who claims to be Herod's son. There's also Court, played by Russell Crowe, a former associate of Herod's who has renounced violence to become a preacher, much to the chagrin of Herod. So Herod uses all the power he wields to force Court into competing and they all kind of collide over this mm. like days-long tournament i thought ace hanlon was the hired gun i was so sure of it but he was just a buffoon you're not my name's clay cantrell and i'm a shootist i've killed 17 men killing is purely a business proposition for me didn't give me any pleasure. My employer's confidential. Now, do we have business together today? As soon as the rain stops, I'm going to make an example of you. <laughs> what do you think of this? I liked it. It's I, good, yeah, right? yeah. It's been a few weeks since I've seen it, but yeah, no, it is really fucking good. Yeah, all the Dutch angles, all oh. the zooms, <laughs> especially like the, the touch I love is where someone gets shot and you'll either it's like some guy's face is blown in and out the back of his head and you'll you see the background through his the hole in his head or like the light shining through Gene Hackman's smoking gun yeah. through the head of like the guy you just killed. Yeah, it's, amazing. it's really also funny. in the climax where a character we won't say gets killed and you only kind of know they've been shot because like the sun is going through the hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Unreal. Sam Raimi, what a filmmaker. What a guy. What a guy. And um, Stop producing. Start directing. Dot Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. <laughs> start directing start better. Good movies. No, <laughs> I like the movie. Um, yeah, this is um, screenplay. It was written by Simon Moore. Just a genius idea for a movie. Mm. You know, a Western based around a competition to find out who's the fastest on the West. It's brilliant because you were guaranteed to have a shootout every 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thanks to that flamboyant, you know, Sam Raimi filmmaking, the zippy camera work, offbeat but precise framing. You know, every gunfight feels distinct from one another and it's really exciting. And um, the competition is also genius because it allows you to gather a lot of Western archetypes together. You know, there's the, the person out for revenge with Stone's character. There's the evil outlaw turned town owner, John Herod, um, who's such a great villain. I was played by the always incredible Gene Hackman. Mm. Only three years after winning an Oscar for his villainous turn in another Western, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Yeah. And then yeah. he did two other Westerns in the 90s, which is crazy. Yeah. Is he in one of those Kevin Costner ones? He's in Wyatt Earp, mm. Lawrence Kasdan, and he's also in Geronimo, which was directed by Walter Hill. Oh. Yeah. I've never seen the latter two. Neither have I. Uh, and neither has anybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so, I, I'm going to check them out. Yeah. Didn't Tombstone come out the same year as Wyatt Earp? Yeah. They, there you go. Yeah. Capitalize exactly, each yeah. other. Yeah. Although you, you love Tombstone, right? Tombstone's never fucking Tombstone. great. Gotta watch Tombstone. Tombstone's amazing. Um, we'll do Sam Elliott this year. And then we'll both watch Tombstone. And I'll watch 1883. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's a plan. Yeah, solved. Um... Do you also have Crow's, you know, with Crow's character, there's like the preachers renounce violence, but was forced into it again. Mm. I think that's an archetype. Pre-Gladiator, Russell Crowe. One of his first yeah. American movies. Yeah. Really good. Really good. Um, you have the young cocky gunslinger with DiCaprio, also on one in this, so mm. good. But on top of those, kind of, they're like the main characters, but then you have all these like great side characters, like um, the older gunslinger who tells tall tales of his exploits, Lance Henriksen, looking badass. Ace Hanlon, yeah. Ace Hanlon, ooh. Doesn't he have like car- cards oh, stitched onto his leather chaps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he, just the thing where he gets someone to hold the car and then shoots him. Yeah. yeah, it's great. There's um, a guy with a bunch of scars on his face whose name is just Scars <laughs> by Mark Boone Jr. And then there's the hired gun played by Keith David. Mm. And those kinds of characters are archetypes for a reason um, because they're cool and seeing them all together in a movie is really fun and it's great for us as people who love character actors because each supporting character gets a special introductory scene and gets a chance to really own like two or three scenes or the five or ten minutes in the movie devoted to their gunfights mm. you know yeah and um, Keith David plays this kind of enigmatic man named Sergeant Contrell I feel like Raimi knew what he had with David because we actually hear his character Contrell before we see him it's when the lady eavesdrops through a door on a conversation between Contrell and the villagers of the town and a villager says like we pray to God that a man like you would come and help us and Contrell's heard saying back well maybe you should have called your priest <laughs> um, and the lady then peeks in the door and sees the villagers offering jewellery before Contrell appears in front of her you know David wearing a black hat tinted glasses and old timey twirly moustache and just slams the door in her face yeah to agree to good opening there's also that really good moment later when you know the barman is taking the names for the competition and Contrell gives his and the barman is like, how do you spell that? Contrell takes a big drag of his pipe and says, correctly. <laughs> and then like he takes sort of a backseat in the movie for about 45 minutes until it's revealed, you know, he he's a professional gunfighter hired by the townspeople to kill Herod. You know, as Cantrell tells Herod before their duel, I'm Clay Cantrell. I'm a shootist. I've killed 17 men. Killing is purely a business proposition for me. Doesn't give me any pleasure. My employer is confidential. And he's matter of fact, but he's also a bit cocky. He's like, yeah, mm. I know him. I'm, I'm, I'm the real deal. I'm the best gunman. And Herod's like, you know, when the rain stops, I'm going to make an example of you. And Cantrell just laughs in his face. Like, yeah, right. Um, slight spoiler, but um, I feel like Cantrell's confidence was he, uh, misplaced. He, he's made an example of. Yeah. <laughs> he's made an example of. Um, that scene leads to the highlight of the movie. Herod's big monologue to the town where he says, all I hear from you, you spineless carrots, is how poor you are. Hey, you can't afford my taxes. Yet somehow you managed to find the money to hire a gunfire to kill me. If you got so much money, I'm just going to have to take some more. Because clearly some of you haven't gotten the message. This is my town. I run everything. If you live to see the dawn, it's because I allow it. I decide who lives or who dies. All time. Really good. Yeah. Monologue. Um, what do you think of David in this? I think he's great. Yeah. Um, I think this movie is so stylish. Like there's the amount of like gun porn in this movie <laughs> is great. It's got all the like nickel plated revolvers and stuff like that. And then, the, but his pipe is done with the exact same amount of detail. Mm. Yeah, and um, he's such an easy to like character with his like comic book feel and sensibility, and all the like highly stylish shootouts he's involved in and the sets he's what he walks through. Um, I think the Quick and the Dead is one of the smaller roles of the four he had in 1995, and I think what I like the most about Keith David is that no matter the role, you can tell he loves his job and just relishes the opportunity to sneakily steal a scene right out from under the leads often enough. Um, and he, like we were saying earlier, um, 
he's had a strange career his whole life because in some films like They Live the role is written specifically for him and he's the co-lead while in others like the Chuck Norris threequel Braddock Missing in Action 3 uh, released in the same year as They Live he plays Embassy Gate Captain and obviously he's gotten meteor roles the longer he's been around but he still takes the small stuff those characters will more often than not have actual names now like Otis Haywood and Nope one of the 17 roles he had in 2022 um yeah. Even you were saying in The Nice Guys where he's just like the old man or something. He's like, yeah, the he's older he, guy or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's in the movie quite a bit. Yeah, a lot, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do think you, you kind of wish Dave had a little bit more screen time or stuff to do in um, The Quick and the Dead. Mm. But like, he does the absolute most of what he's given. And it kind of winds up being important to the movie and showing just how much everyone in Redemption hates Herod. Yeah. Um, plus, there must be no greater pleasure for an actor than performing against a legend like Hackman. And also having Hackman's character praise your character as being like the real deal. Mm. This is the bit in the office scene where Hackman's Herod says to David's control, like, I thought Ace Hanlon was the hired gun. I was so sure of it. But he was just a buffoon. You're not. And like, that's quite an honor yeah, for Hackman yeah. to say that to you in any circumstance, fictional or not. You know? Yeah. Um, the dialogue in this movie is really good. Um, I like the bit where DiCaprio's character, the kid, beats the self-confessed best gunman in Sweden. And the kid's like, am I fast or is Sweden just a very small place? <laughs> uh, that's really good. I have a minor flaw with this movie, though. I want to see it. if you agree. Yeah. Given the premise of the competition, only the winner will have evaded being seriously injured or killed. Right. Therefore, I feel like people should be more anxious. Probably. Everyone's a little flippant. Yeah, that's true. I suppose because they all think they're going to win. I think this movie should stand, could stand to be a little more like that Georgian Russian roulette movie. You know, Thirteen Zamiti. <laughs> you know that movie. <laughs> should be a little more tense. I don't know. Maybe yeah. No. But I think I think but it's, 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 it's it a, is, does have that comic book sensibility of like these people are superhero or they think of themselves as superheroes yeah, sure. in their respective fields so and maybe if it was more very dis- confident. disturbing it would be less rewatchable because I feel like this is a movie I would watch again yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, well why do you do Dead Presence? you go for it yeah, yeah, yeah. Dead Presence and then I'll take Community and then we'll wrap up Great. beautiful so this is a 1995 movie that is a mix of both a war drama and a crime drama uh, set in the late 60s and 70s it centers around Anthony played by Lawrence Tate who while growing up in the Bronx as a teenager with his close friend Skip, played by Chris Tucker, and Jose, played by Freddy Rodriguez, does a little work for a genial-seeming, one-legged, small-time crook named Kirby. By Did Keith you say David. one-legged? One-legged. Fair yes. enough. Go on. Um, <laughs> do go on. Um, partly out of wanting to follow in his father and Kirby's footsteps, who both served in Korea. That's where Kirby lost his leg. But also partly because his best friend, Jose, gets drafted and he decides to enlist to fight in Vietnam. However, after a hellish four years fighting in the war, where he and his squad both witness and commit several atrocities, Anthony returns to the Bronx but struggles to adjust to civilian life, suffering from PTSD. He also faces difficulties supporting the girlfriend, um, whose name is Juanita, played by Rose Jackson, who he left behind to serve in Vietnam and providing for their child together. As such, he becomes part of a dangerous plan with Kirby to rob an armored truck. You did good, kid. You're almost as good a getaway driver as me. Oh, thanks. Say, uh... So you were a getaway driver, huh? <coughs> Son of a bitch. What? What's wrong? I don't go back there and kill that bastard. Why? What happened? Motherfucker made me lose a whole pack of cigarettes. A pack of cigarettes? <laughs> a pack of cigarettes? I thought maybe you should be worried about your leg or something. <laughs> oh, that shit's funny to you, huh? No, no, it's not funny. I tell you what, the next time a motherfucker grabs him by the wrong leg, I'm gonna use it to kick his ass between the shoulder blades. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, you really did that sucker. <laughs> yeah, everybody in town know I got one leg and that motherfucker grabbed the wrong one. Me and Kirby, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was the second film by the Hughes brothers who made two excellent movies in the 90s. Um, this and their debut, Menace to Society. Dead Presence was a very ambitious next step for them in many ways. Menace to Society was a contemporary teen drama dead presence is this year spanning period piece partly based on true events examining the difficulties a lot of african-americans and other minorities faced returning from vietnam and the movie has this 20-minute sequence devoted to anthony and skip's experiences in the war that is just really effectively visceral and upsetting mm-hmm. and i think um you know great critic uh, mark Kermode, who's a huge champion of this movie I, I heard about it first through him um was right when he says like that this section of dead presence is almost better at capturing the horrors of the vietnam war than something like platoon which also features keith david mm. um which is some feat given platoon is set in vietnam for the entirety of its runtime 
And then after the section, as I mentioned, like Anthony suffers with PTSD. On top of that, Skip, the Chris Tucker character, becomes an Agent Orange victim and a heroin addict in Vietnam, while Jose, who was a demolition expert in the war, loses a hand and becomes a pyromaniac. Um, and, you know, compounding these things is both sort of the racial issues of the time. Anthony finds it really hard to get a job, but also, um, you know, people who didn't fight in Vietnam not realizing the sort of psychological impacts of the war than yeah, how it mm. affects these men. Um, you know, Juanita doesn't really understand why Anthony is drinking a lot and waking up sweating and screaming in the middle of the night. And basically the last half or two thirds back in the Bronx in this movie is just this slow descent for the characters as they try and fail to adjust to normal life again. And the movie begins with brief glimpses of the robbery before flashing back. So there's a real sense of, uh, a tragic sense of kind of inevitability to the characters becoming involved in this criminal plan. But I think the movie is dealing with a very serious subject and is kind of an emotional gut punch. It's probably the most rewatchable, devastating movie I can think of because it's so stylishly directed by mm. the Hughes brothers. Um, you know, the era-appropriate soundtrack is amazing. The dialogue is crackling. And the story is basically like the deer hunter, platoon, goodfellas, widows mushed into a blender. Nice. And it's one of those movies I loved when I saw it as a teenager. And on a rewatch, it was even better than I remembered. But I... Even though it was a decent hit upon release in 1995, it got pretty middling reviews, which I find kind of bewildering. I, maybe it does try to cover too much ground for a two-hour movie, and as a result, there are certain parts that feel a bit clipped or certain parts that could be developed a little more. Although part of me likes that it's a pretty pacey movie with, like, no fat in its bones. Mm. Um, I also think another reason for the mixed reviews might just be that it was ahead of its time in the way it used you know, a blend of different genres to explore real-world issues, which maybe wasn't as much of a thing back then, because I would put Dead Presidents on a par with, like, The Five Bloods and, like, Judas and the Black Messiah. I think more recent movies with a similar tone and subject matter, that's similarly mixed genres, but those films, for some reason, were much more celebrated. Mm. Um, On Keith David, I compared Dead Presidents to Goodfellas, and part of that is down to the Hughes' brothers' fluid direction, the way they use pop music on their soundtrack, evoking Scorsese, but also there's a bit of, like, young Henry Hill and Jimmy Conway in the early sections of Goodfellas to the way you know, Tate's character, Anthony looks up to David's Kirby. While Kirby is obviously way more small time than Robert De Niro's Conway character in Goodfellas, like, I think um, Kirby runs an illegal lottery game and is a loan shark. <laughs> um, he has that Conway thing in which he just projects this effortless charisma and appears friendly from the outside and looks out for this young kid who idolizes him. But also there's that feeling of like, I never want to get on the wrong side of him. Yeah, yeah. That's another incredible sequence in Des Presidents sees uh, David's Kirby slip the young Anthony some cash and ask him like, if he wants to take a little run with him. And Anthony's beaming. He's like, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll take a run with you, sure. And Kirby lets Anthony drive for the first time on the trip and Anthony's like chuffed. But they park and Kirby says to Anthony, leave the motor running and gets out of the car and then there's the next thing Kirby throws a dude who owes him money through a shop window and starts beating him <laughs> on the pavement. And then the injured man's daughter comes out and pulls a pistol on Kirby. And he just smiles and says to her, you got more heart than your punk ass old man. Grabs the pistol off her and punches her onto the ground like it's nothing. And all the whole time, Anthony's just looking on like, <laughs> you know, like shock. Then the man on the ground winds up grabbing Kirby's prosthetic leg and they start like wrestling for the leg on the pavement. And Kirby winds up pulling the gun on the guy grabs his leg and gets back into the car with Anthony and just casually says like floor it <laughs> and then later he's like should go back and kill that guy he made me lose my pack of cigarettes <laughs> um, it's just one of those scenes where your jaws on the floor watching it while at the same time every line delivery David delivers is just tops the one that came before it and it's an important scene because it you know, establishes Kirby and Anthony's bond and thus kind of Anthony's connection to a crime world Anthony doesn't seem to be put off by Kirby's violence and you know when he comes back from Vietnam and struggles to find a job he actually turns to Kirby for work but he says he's left the criminal life behind because as he says the bribe money the police were asking for became too much okay I wasn't gonna bust my ass sending some cop kids to college um (laughs) which is another great line but um the two wind up coming together for this robbery in the third act of the film and I won't spoil anything but um David gets some more scenes doing line deliveries in that part of the movie um so yeah people should check it out it's really really good yeah it sounds really good it's uh, to be honest it's uh, it's, a red some of the plot on Wikipedia it sounded really depressing so I didn't you know go for it it is it is parts of the same reason upsetting. I didn't go for Requiem um, for a I Dream d- I wouldn't I didn't go into specifics about what happens in Vietnam mm-hmm. because I actually think if I said it, the words out loud or like a description of the scene it would seem too grotesque right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah fair enough but, um, do you want to do community as a yeah uh, let's cleanser. let's end it on a, on a high note <laughs> yeah. or a happy note anyway it's the study group sixth year at Greendale Community College Frankie Dart played by 
criminal minds Paget Brewster has been hired to make the college seem more respectable and the study group now consisting of Jeff Winger played by Joel McHale Britta Perry played by Gillian Jacobs Annie Edison played by Alison Bree Abed Nadir played by Danny Putty and Ben Chang played by Ken Jong, are drafted in to help after the Dean played by Jim Rash buys a useless VR system created by aloof but affable tech genius Elroy Potashnik who lives on the campus in a in an RV um <laughs> After saving the, and that's, he's played by Keith David, after saving the Dean from his VR obsession, Elroy is hired as Green, as head of Greendale's IT department, inextricably linking him to the study group shenanigans. Do I know how to be a good wedding guest? Yes, I do. A little too well, that's the problem. My name is Elroy Potashnik, and from 2006 to 2009, I was addicted to encouraging white people. All right. Now there's a man who knows his meatballs. It started as simple survival. The tech industry in the 90s, this face, this voice, they're either going to help you or hold you back. So you tap the gas because, well, why tap the brake? Oh, you know. You know what you're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. this man knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> I learned the cheat code. White people like encouragement. It really doesn't matter what for. Now that's a container for liquid. I never felt like a sellout. I never laughed at anything unfunny, never said anything untrue. The thing is, and this will sound racist, white people are very discouraged. So in Community, they had, um, over the fifth and sixth seasons, the writers put outside characters into the study group, like Buzz Hickey, who's played by Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad in season five, and Keith David's Elroy in season six. And initially these characters kind of view Greendale and the study group with suspicion, annoyance, and in Elroy's case, often genuine fear. There's a bit where he's like... um, He's like, uh, are you a cult? Are you going to eat me? <laughs> <laughs> and as time goes by, the study group's quirky charm breaks through their defences and convinces them that the, this livable band of misfits are just that, not not a cult, uh, not a cannibal cult. Um, and in Elroy's case, what breaks through his defences is a board game called The Ears Have It, which just involves him and the younger members of the group all wearing like, you know when you wear a card on your forehead and you're yeah. supposed to guess, they're just wearing different animal ears <laughs> and they all have to guess what it is. Like, I'm an elephant. <laughs> I knew I wasn't a dolphin because they don't have ears and I looked up on my on my dentist's ro- ceiling and there was a picture of it there and I was getting a root canal recently. <laughs> um, and so his aloof nature hides the fact that he might be one of the funniest recurring characters the show's ever had and it also reveals just how good Keith David's comic timing is. This is an episode where um, they're having an emergency midnight meeting because the ca- the college accidentally gave a dog a degree and um, uh, Annie, who's like the over the intelligent overachiever of the group and is a real firm believer in black and white, right and wrong, it calls it evil and Paget Brewster goes, yeah, I wouldn't call it evil Silly more like, and Keith David goes, some things are silly and evil, like candy cigarettes. And remember when Flavor Flav had that TV show? And Paget Brewster goes, I don't own a TV. And there's, it, the camera's just on Keith David and his he raises eyebrows like this and then just drops one. And it's the <laughs> funniest thing I've ever seen anyone do in the history of TV. Um, it's really one of those things you have to see, but oh God, it's so good. And... There's always been like seven members of the study group and though most are consistent, like Jeff, Britta, Annie and Abed, uh, they're the core four. Some have left over the years like Shirley, who's played by Yvette Nicole Brown, uh, Pierce, played by Chevy Chase and but most famously Troy, played by Donald Glover. Um, this often leads to jokes about diversity in um, when Elroy joins the group as one was an old white man, which was Pierce, one was a middle-aged black woman, which was Shirley and the last was a young black man, played by Donald Glover. And so there's a bit where he, he the history of the group is uh, told to um, Elroy and he's like, so am I Black Pierce or Old Troy or Male Shirley? And they're like, well, kind of a mix of the first two. And then, of course, there's the great monologue. The, the rest the rest of the... I'll just say he was one of my favourite characters in one of my favourite shows and I really hope they bring him back for the movie. And the rest I have is just quotes where he call, he says to... And Jeff at one point is you weird hair gelled CPR dummy <laughs> or um, my name is Elroy Potashnik and from 2006 to 2009 I was addicted to encouraging white people an amazing clip yeah. I, I didn't even I kind of dipped in and out of community during the first mm. couple of seasons I never watched the Kitaev one but I I will watch that clip over and over again yeah it's so him. funny it's almost like a funnier die sketch just pulled out of the show yeah but yeah, um, yeah. him uh, addicted to complimenting white people is great this face this voice in the tech industry is it going to help you or hold you back I like the bit where so he, tap the gas because why not why tap, tap the brake? <laughs> I really like the bit where he says, um, "This will sound racist, 
white people are very discouraged. Now this is a man that knows how to marry his cousin. Um, now that's a container for liquid. <laughs> uh, and there's a there's one episode that's actually quite heartbreaking um, in that season, but um, they, um, it's about uh, like an email chain that they've all said horrible things about each other in because they thought it was just a draft box. Mm. Um, but it's actually been sent to all of them anonymously, I think. And he, he turns to Chang and he's like, I've read your message about my house guest era Sinbad wardrobe. And it's really funny because he's dressed like Heath David regularly dresses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I any, could go all day. Any other good quotes? Is that over? Well, there's, there's one really funny one that uh, where... Brit is trying to describe a drawbridge. Oh, I, of a I watched this clip because I yeah. watched a compilation. Of, yeah, yeah, I watched the same one, and uh, he's like, "What's that thing in a castle?" And he's like, "Walls." No, and he goes, "Towers." Uh, it's a moat. It goes. It's oh, goes over a moat. Uh, knights, soldiers, arrows. No, it's it goes like this, and she mimes like a jaw snapping or like a drawbridge lowering and raising. And he's like, "Alligators." And he's like, "No, it's mechanical," and it's one thing, one mechanical alligator. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the episode she leaves with someone and he's he runs to the door like a drawbridge a drawbridge <laughs> yeah. I saw an amazing clip where he um he was explaining like a plan and he was like I'm more of like a verbal thinker like you know I just say things and mm. then like the idea comes to me and then as he's walking away he's like a boot with a compass on the toe <laughs> <laughs> genius yeah, yeah. genius yeah, very good oh. I mean I'm gonna I'm, I, that's a, a show that I would like to watch all the way through yeah, yeah. it's well worth your time the you way that people do it. with kind of Shit's Creek or The Office mm. you know? yeah um, is that everything yeah um, rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from if you have a friend who's reading to the movies why not recommend them our show email I know the at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to us follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram if you love I Know The Face please consider joining five year a month to us through Headstuff Plus where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes and where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. As well as at www.fortnightfrights.wordpress.com where next week's movie is Son of Frankenstein, 1939. Ooh, uh, follow me on Ladderboxd. I'm either Steam Ports or Ports Vero. You can also check me out at joe.e. Uh, I just recently wrote a feature about the Danny Boyle film Trance for its 10th anniversary. See you there, Son of Falls. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.